Welcome to the podcast of Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Please enjoy as Pastor John opens up the word. Good morning. It is amazing how quick this place empties out when all the children disappear. Well, turning your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and what an amazing passage of Scripture we have this morning. And we're just going to read through our text, and then we're going to break it down piece by piece. So, beginning at verse 1, John writes, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, one of the things that I find so precious about this letter of 1 John is that in many places, John just up and tells us exactly why he's writing to us. He says, I've written this to you that you might, or so that you might, dot, dot, dot. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we find one of those statements. He says, my little children, these things um, I write to you that you may not sin. Now, I think it's interesting why he puts this in. Because if we consider what he's written to us before in chapter 1, it makes a lot of sense. Take a look at what he says in 1 John 1, verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John's trying to get us to recognize that we're all sinners. You have sinned, I have sinned, we have all sinned, we're all sinners. Paul said in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it is just a statement of fact to say that we are all sinners. But John goes on to say in 1 John 1.9 that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now I want you to put those two thoughts together. That we're all sinners, that we all fall short of the glory of, of God, or God's standard, we all miss His mark. That's one truth. But the other truth is that we can all be forgiven of our sins if we confess our sins. 
he's faithful and just, and he will absolutely forgive us our sins. So you can see that if somebody really took both of those truths to heart, it might make them not really care too much about sin. I mean, why should I care about sin? We all sin, right? Everybody's doing it. Everybody's guilty. So what's the big deal? It just makes me a member of the human race if I sin, doesn't it? But on the other hand, somebody might take the truth of 1 John 1, 9 and say, well, look, God's in the forgiving business, right? I sin, he forgives. It's a good arrangement. I mean, that's his business to forgive, and it's my business to sin. We all work together, and I certainly give him a job to do, right? And you could see how somebody might take what John said here the wrong way. It might make somebody more cavalier about sin. Well, who really cares? So John wants to make it clear when he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 here, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. He's saying, I don't want anything that I've said before to make you think that sin doesn't matter, that it's trivial before God. Look, you and I all realize that our flesh is weak. And until this sinful flesh is redeemed one day and glorified by our Lord, we will be liable to sin. But it's not inevitable. All the resources for the victory over sin are available to us in Jesus Christ. So we don't have to take this defeatist attitude towards sin. And so John is telling us why he's writing this letter specifically. So we might not sin. But then look what he says at the end of verse 1. It's so precious. He says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, in our culture, it's pretty common today for people to tell lawyer jokes, right? And we make fun of lawyers and we poke fun fun at them every day in our culture and perhaps some of it is deserved but i want you to realize something jesus christ is a lawyer and in verse one here the word advocate means a defense lawyer on our side you see, God's desire is that we may not sin, but when we do sin, we have a lawyer, a defense lawyer in heaven. You know, there's something about our modern legal system today. The most important thing isn't whether you did the crime or not. The most important thing is whether or not you can hire a good lawyer. Because a good lawyer will have your case dismissed or 
have you found not guilty? And how often do we see that in our society? A man or a woman that we know is guilty gets off just because they had a good lawyer. Well, I'm here this morning to tell you that we've got the best lawyer on our side. And John tells us that this advocate, this lawyer, this defender is Jesus Christ. But please notice what it says here because this is a point that many people will miss. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. In other words, this advocate is available for you right now. Jesus isn't just available to forgive the sins that you committed, perhaps in your youth or, you know, before you were in a relationship with him, but he's here and available to forgive your sins right now. And I really need to remind you of something here now listen up god is not shocked by your behavior and i know sometimes we feel like that don't we god didn't forgive you at one time in your life only to say later on oh my heavens look what he did i, I mean i can't believe it if i would have known you know, that he would have done that, you know, I would never have forgiven him in the first place. No, God knows. And he knows what you will commit in the future. And when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin and for mine, he paid for it all, past, present, and future. And his forgiveness is available to us right here right now and so it's just like we're standing in a heavenly court before a righteous judge god the father and our advocate jesus stands up to plead the case on our behalf and the judge says how do you plead and jesus stands up to answer the charges against us and you're all ready for him to make this fancy statement on your behalf and he walks up to the judge and says, Well, Your Honor, he's completely guilty. In fact, he's done even worse than he's being of, accused of right now. And my client makes a humble and complete confession before the court right now. Well, that's sure not going to work in a human court, is it? That is not what you want your defense lawyer to be saying for you, is it? But in the heavenly court, that's the only way that you can find mercy. So the gavel slams down and the judge answers and he says, Guilty! And he looks at Jesus, your advocate, and says, What shall his sentence be? And Jesus proposes the sentence and says, the sentence should be death. My client deserves the full 
wrath of this court's justice. And by this time, you're shaking in your boots. We've declared ourselves guilty. Our own lawyer is saying that we deserve the full wrath of the court. We're in a bad situation. And there in that very courtroom is Satan himself. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. He's our accuser. He's standing off laughing. He's thinking that he's won this great victory over us. He's having great fun. We're guilty. We've admitted our guilt. We see our deserved punishment. But then our advocate asks to approach the bench, doesn't he? Your Honor, may I have a word with this court? And Jesus walks up to the bench and to the judge and he says, Dad. He says, Dad, this one belongs to me. He's guilty. He deserves the punishment, but I paid his price. I took the punishment and the wrath this court should bring upon this man, and instantly the gavel slams down on the judge's bench again. And the judge cries out, Guilty is charged, but the penalty has been satisfied. And you can just picture our accuser, Satan, that prosecuting attorney. He's going crazy. He's saying, this can't be. I mean, aren't you even going to put this guy on probation? And the judge answers, no. The penalty has been completely paid for by my son. And there's nothing to put him on probation for. And the judge then turns to our advocate and he says, I'm going to release this man into your custody. Jesus, you take care of him from here. And that is where we stand right now. We are in the custody of our advocate, Jesus. He stands as bond, as security for us, and we are forgiven. The case is closed. It's dismissed. It's done. Completely guilty. You see, when you go into a human court and your defense lawyer, and you're, you know, you're a defense lawyer, the whole trick about this is trying not to admit or to avoid admitting guilt of any kind. You want to deny the crime. You want to find your way around it. You make slippery statements to stay away from saying that you ever did anything. But in God's court, the only way to find mercy, the only way to find acquittal is to plead guilty. Completely guilty. And let your advocate plead your case for you. My friend, John simply says that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, many people may think that our sin makes God against us. That our sin makes God to be our enemy. But God's Love is so great that in His love, He went to the ultimate measure to enable us to stand. In the face of this holy righteousness through Jesus, 
God is for us even when we're guilty sinners. And I want you to notice one last thing before we move on at the end of verse 1. It says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I think that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Jesus Christ, our righteous advocate. And that means that He's fully qualified to serve as our defense lawyer because He satisfied the righteousness of God. Think of it this way. If you want to be a lawyer in Alberta, you need to pass the bar exam, right? You or I just can't run into the courtroom and say, I want to represent this person. You have to meet certain qualifications and you have to pass a very difficult exam. And God has a bar exam in order to practice law in the courts of heaven. You have to be righteous. You have to be completely righteous. You have to be sinless. You don't need to come in and defend your own sin before that court. Only Jesus can be that advocate. Friends, some people want to be their own lawyer before God. They want to come and they say, I'll represent myself, thank you very much. I'll be my own lawyer. Don't do it. Because if you do that, you've got a fool for a client. It won't work. You need to throw yourself on the mercy of the court and let Jesus do that work. Now in verse 2, John continues on with the same kind of thought. He says, referring of Jesus, of course, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, that's an unusual word, isn't it? Propitiation. And I can pretty much guarantee that you haven't used that word even once this week. So what does it mean? Well, it's an ancient word, and it carries with it the idea of presenting a gift to the gods so that you could turn away the displeasure or the wrath of the gods. Let's say there was this cruel calamity to come upon an ancient city, like some famine or some flood, and, and they believe that they must sacrifice to their pagan gods. So they sacrifice some animal and offer the blood to appease the God and hopefully the gods will have mercy on them and turn away from their fierce wrath. And that is how they would use the word propitiation. <clears throat> so in other words, they make a sacrifice to bribe their gods. They're not making a noble sacrifice to them. They're bribing them. And people still try to do that today, don't they? God, if you get me out of this calamity, I'll go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. But in the Christian idea of propitiation, God Himself provided the sacrifice in Jesus Christ. He would be the one who will turn away 
that righteous wrath. In other words, you don't bring a sacrifice to God to make Him happy. Jesus Christ offered Himself as the sacrifice, and all you do is put your trust in the sacrifice that He did. You know, I've heard stories of people that have tried to bribe traffic officers. You know, maybe they slip them a $100 bill with their registration or something like that. But there's nothing that you can do to bribe God. You can't bribe this judge. You can't say, well, if I do a hundred good things, God will be happy with me. No, there's nothing that you can do to grease the wheels before this court. But some people still hope to. They hope to bribe God through their good works. Well, God, look at all the good things that I do. I mean, I go to church every Sunday. I give to your work. I'm a faithful person. I'm a good husband or wife. I'm a good father or mother. I'm a good whatever. Surely all my good will outweigh my bad. Surely that's going to make God forget about all my sin. It won't work that way, my friend. Here's an idea for you to try. Next time you get pulled over by that traffic officer, I want you to roll down your window and say, Officer, I know I was speeding today. But I want you to know something. Every time for the last year, I drove the speed limit down, speed limit down this road. Doesn't that count for something? And the officer will look at you and go, good for you. But I pulled you over for what you did today. And you're getting a ticket for what you did today. And you're going to pay a fine for what you did today. And that's the same in God's court. You can't do a hundred good things to outweigh one bad thing. You need to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Go before God's bench with your advocate, Jesus Christ. Are you getting what I'm saying here? Now he goes on to say here in verse 2, As he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. I want you to get this. In other words, the sacrifice that Jesus made he made a sacrifice that was suitable, that was available, and that was capable of saving the entire world. Now I need you to understand something here. The real problem in the world today about people being in separation from God, it's not a sin problem per se. It's an obedience problem. Do you understand that? Jesus made a sacrifice or propitiation that was capable of saving the whole world. So the solution for sin has been dealt with through Jesus Christ. The only sin that is a problem here is the sin of unbelief. And the real problem is people won't come and take advantage of this advocate that Jesus Christ has made himself. Does that make sense to you? 
Please understand I am not marginalizing our sin. But if you insist on defending yourself now instead of going through your advocate, if you insist on thinking that you can try and get away from this court and do your own thing, thinking you won't ever have to answer for it, that is a problem. Jesus dealt with the sin, and now we can and we must come by way of our advocate. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now in verse 3, John continues with a different thought. He says, now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The evidence of someone knowing and fellowshipping with God is that they keep his commandments. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's that simple. Loving obedience is a natural result of your relationship with God. And that is a very important distinction to make here. Some see this connection between knowing that we have an advocate and living a righteous life and will say, listen, I've got this great advocate and anything I do, he'll just get me off in court. I don't need to be concerned about how I live because everything I do, he'll just forgive me. And so some think, We'll, we'll think that knowing this love and this grace of God will cause us to take advantage of Him and be le more, le or less concerned with our sin than ever. But no, it doesn't. Because when we know the kindness of God, when we know the love of God extended towards us, we want to obey Him all the more. When you know how much somebody loves you, when you know how much they care for you, it changes you. It does something in your heart. And so John simply tells us, we can know that we know Him by keeping His commandments. In fact, over the next few chapters, John will give us three specific tests so someone can know that they really know, know God. We're going to see about the doctrinal test. If we really know God, then we're going to believe certain truths about Him. There's going to be the love test. If we really know God, it's going to show in our relationships. And then there's the obedience test. If we really know God, then we're going to obey His commandments. And this is the test that John is speaking about right here. The obedience test. And he continues this thought even more strongly in verse 4 where he says, He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It's like, wow, John. I mean, like, tell us how you really feel. You're just laying it on the line here, aren't you? You say you know God, but then you don't keep His commandments and you're not telling the truth. 
You say you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You say God is doing something in your life. You say you want to walk after him. All right, let's see the evidence in your life. And my friends, that's not an unfair question. In fact, God's word is asking you that same question. Let's see the proof in the pudding, so to speak. And now John goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, notice this, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him or made complete in him, we could say. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. In other words, John makes the link between our obedience and our love. He says if you have the love of God perfected or matured in you, then it's going to result in obedience. You're going to keep His Word. And here's the bottom line. You can't enter into a genuine relationship with God. You can't have a real working friendship with the eternal God of the universe and have a love for Him in a relationship and not have it touch your life. When someone becomes a Christian, there's a change in their relationship with sin. A Christian no longer loves sin the way that he once did. A Christian no longer brags about sin the way he once did. A Christian no longer plans to sin the way he once did. A Christian no longer fondly remembers their sin the way they once did. A Christian never fully enjoys their sin the way they once did. And a Christian is no longer comfortable in habitual sin as they once were. My friends, remember, sin is not eliminated in the believer until he comes to glory. We still sin, and John has made that very plain to us, hasn't he? Each and every one of us has to deal with sin until the day we die. But there must be a change in a person's relationship to sin when they become a Christian, when they truly follow after Jesus Christ. You guys know how much I love C.H. Spurgeon. Well, he put it beautifully. He said this, The Christian no longer loves sin. It is the object of a sternest horror. He no longer regards it as a mere trifle. He no longer plays with it or talks with it with unconcern. Sin is dejected in the Christian's heart, though it is not ejected. Sin may enter the heart and fight for dominion, but it cannot sit upon the throne because we belong to Jesus Christ. Amen? And the thought is brought around full circle. Did you notice that at the end of verse 6? It says, He who says he abides in him. Do you know what it means to abide in him? It means to say that you live in Jesus. 
that you have a real relationship with him we have a living relationship with one another and if you say that you have that kind of relationship what does it say in verse 6 he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked jesus lived a certain way didn't he and if we say that we live with him then we're going to walk in the same way and jesus lived his life with a certain heart with a certain conduct with a certain love towards other people and if you're really following jesus you want to live the same way do you know what they originally called followers of Jesus Christ? Not Christians. Not Christians. They called them Nazarenes or followers of the way. Later in the city of Antioch, they started calling these followers of Jesus Christians, which means little Jesuses or partisans of the Jesus party. And when they started calling them Christians, they meant it as a derogatory term. Well, there's just this little Christ, a, a little Jesus walking around. But when the Christians heard it, they thought, wow, do you really think so? I mean, do you really think that I'm living like Jesus? Thanks, I'll take it. And from that time on, the followers of Jesus have been referred to as Christians. But you know something? That name gets all too easily these days. Maybe it's a box we check on a survey. You know, religion, Christian, check. Well, my parents and grandparents are Christians, so I must be as well. I live in a Christian nation, so I guess that's what I am. What the word really means is someone who walks as he walked. And when our lives are truly touched by him, when we abide in him, then we walk just as he walked. Not in sinless perfection but in a life that's pointing the same direction on the compass that Jesus walked. My friends, I just suggest to you this morning that that must be the absolute best way to live. And it's absolutely the most rewarding way to live. To walk as Jesus walked. And God gives us just that kind of of invitation to follow after him that same way. And it's a test to see if what we say really lines up with what we are. It's time for us to walk the talk. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the wonderful example John shows us just of the importance of us walking in your footsteps. And Lord, you didn't Come to this earth, live a sinless life, die on the cross, rise from the dead to give us the freedom to just sin whenever we wanted to. 
you've extended that grace to us. You've given an opportunity uh, for us to be joint heirs with you. You've extended so much grace and mercy towards us. It's that incredible love and kindness that you have shown towards us that causes us to just say, we love you, Jesus. Thank you. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to walk in step with you. And Lord, in a world that opposes every single step you want to take when it's towards you, Lord, it's not an easy road. But Lord, help us to walk the talk and to live our lives as you lived yours. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.